I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, this is Ibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Sarah Maslin Neer is the author of Horse Crazy, the story of a woman and a world in love with an animal. Sarah is a staff reporter for the New York Times and was a finalist for the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for Unvarnished, her more than year-long investigation into New York City's nail salon industry that documented the exploitative labor practices and health issues manicurists face. I totally remember reading that article. Before becoming a staff writer, Neer freelanced for 11 sections of the paper, traveling to the Alaskan wilderness in search of people who prefer to live in isolation and to post-earthquake Haiti. She began as the New York Times nightlife columnist, covering 252 parties in 18 months, and continued on to a career that has taken her from covering kidnappings by terrorists in West Africa to wildfires in California and everything in between. A born and raised Manhattanite, Sarah Neer earned a master's at the Columbia School of Journalism and graduated from Columbia University, where she studied politics and philosophy. She loves horses, which you will find out when you read this book. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Horse Crazy. Thank you for having me. Your first in-person. My first in-person. I'm a little nervous about it. I'm like, what do we do? <laughs> yeah, live humans live interacting, humans sitting next to each other. person in front of me. <laughs> you can't watch me like shuffle through and hear my dog. I don't know. Anyway. Okay. As you know, I loved your book. Loved, loved. Could not put it down. Read wow. every word, like just obsessed with the way you write and what you were writing about. And I just loved it. Oh it was gosh. like, so like there was a, a poetic quality to how you write and um, the sentences were really beautiful. And yet it, it, it didn't even matter like what was happening. It was how you're writing about it. Mm. But then the, what was going on was also really interesting. 
Anyway, I didn't say that very well, but why don't you tell listeners what Horse Crazy is about and why you wrote this memoir? Sure. So it really gratifies me to hear that you like the sort of lyricalness of the writing because I'm a reporter for the New York Times. And as a journalist, you're not exactly allowed to have a flourish with your pen, right? It's the facts, you know, get it right, get it straight. So writing a reported nonfiction that became memoristic enabled me to have fun with my pen and be my literary self that I've bottled up for so long. So thank you for clocking onto that. But to answer your question, I'm a reporter for the New York Times. I have been there for a decade. I actually started out as the party reporter. Yes. I did 252 <laughs> parties in 18 months. And then I moved on to be a breaking news reporter and an investigative reporter. And I've actually traveled all over the world for the Times, serving briefly in West Africa and in Haiti. And everywhere I went, when I finished my article, I'd put down one notebook and I'd whip out another, just my own, and I'd go find the horses. And in finding the horses, you always find the stories behind them. And those stories are people. And I realized I'd been writing this book for years just by dint of my own personal obsession. So Horse Crazy, I like to say, isn't a book about horses. It's a book about obsession, a reported look at what makes us obsessed. And it just so happens that my focus is these wonderful creatures. And I found people all over the world just like me. I actually pitched the story as to Simon & Schuster, who published it, as a compendium, like an almanac of these animals all over the world and people who love them. And I ended it this isn't my story. This is the story the horses have told me. And they pushed back and they said, actually, we think it is your story. And then that became the narrative through line is my own personal journey with how horses have saved me and healed me being the glue that holds it together. Wow. So I shouldn't have even called it a memoir because hmm. it's, it's not exactly a memoir. Yeah. It's a, a journey through obsession, turning my reportorial lens and on myself, which yikes, as a reporter, <laughs> you know, you don't ever use the word I or me in anything I write. It's forbidden. And so that was the hardest part of this book. So that's why it was structured with like a horse for each chapter. Exactly. That from your original proposal. Yes. Yes, exactly. There were sort of an almanac of these animals and they were like, no, 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 no. It's an almanac of you and exploring your own obsession. Wow. And I should say, I have always kept my passion for horses totally secret until the last two years. I cover really, really challenging corners of the world. I did a large investigation into, for example, if people know my work, it's usually into New York City nail salons, a big expose on the labor exploitations and health effects manicurist face that was a finals for the that. Pulitzer yeah, Prize. Amazing. Yeah, thank you. And I was worried I wouldn't be taken seriously as a New York Times reporter if I revealed that so much of my heart and soul was caught up with ponies. And I was speaking to a friend who's a book author and he said, what do you want to write about? I said, well, actually horses. And he said, Sarah, the only thing that matters is passion. Passion translates. It's a universalizable thing. And it doesn't matter the subject. That's what readers want to hear. And I think that's kind of the theme of your podcast, right? There's such variety and so, so many stories, but passion translates. And that inspired me to come out as a horse girl. Wow. <laughs> but why were you embarrassed about it? I just thought that it was soft. And perhaps that is a little bit of the misogyny that's tied up with horse sport that I talk about in the book. Yep. That it's this thing that is a focus of women, at least in North America, it is really predominantly female, the hunter jumper world that I'm in. And so it's seen as 
cushy as a, a light thing, even though it's extreme. I've broken my vertebrae several times. I asked you when we sat down for this conversation if I could have a pillow because I'm in constant pain. It's as extreme as hang gliding or mountaineering, piloting an animal at velocity, but it's minimized, I think, because of the feminine connotation. And I had minimized it in my own way. Yeah. It doesn't sound feminine as you are like, you know, bareback riding in like all these foreign countries. I can't remember, you know, I mean, it's crazy the stuff you were doing, yeah. the galloping scene where you're like taking off to the water. I mean, whoa, it's a lot. And yeah. all the times you fell, I mean, this is like, <laughs> it's like, you're not even like riding. You're like in a, you're like in a, on one of those things that come in bars, you know, like the rodeo. Oh yeah. Thing that like throws you off. Yeah, yeah. That's like, you know, the story you're just like constantly. Well, and it becomes such a great objective correlative for life that, Falling off is part of riding. It's not a failure of riding. It is part of the journey. Uh, I say to fall off is to ride and to get back on is to live. And in that way, examining my own passion for these horses. Why am I so obsessed? When I've broken myself so many times. Uh, I, I'm not that good, <laughs> but I'm addicted. And, and to understand that was the journey of the book. Wow. And you had this passage early on about this is how you described the writing and, and sort of what it was about it. You said it was also hopelessly decadent, but we were naive to the image we cut prancing on horseback to do our luncheon shopping in the fanciest town in America. We picked blackberries from horseback on the way home and dismounting back at the barn, we ate hunks of bread and cheese in the shade with Amigo tearing grass beside us in silence. It was a decade before cell phones and we don't have a single picture to document our ritual and I'm glad for it. We were so present, I can still smell the grass, the brine of horse sweat, the sticky mint on my palm. Best of all, it was a world away from the high pressures of high school and my higher pressure parents and the whizzing, buzzing city that enveloped us and kept us far from horses most of the year. It was the only world that felt my own. <laughs> so oh, nice. Thank you. Well, I really examine in the book why was I so committed to this world? You know, I'm the daughter of an immigrant, a Holocaust survivor, a Jew from New York City, truly out of place in this elite waspy world of, of Jackie Kennedy and, you know, Kashmir and Jodhpur, so I felt. And I think my obsession was about passing, about belonging. My father had masqueraded under several different identities as a Catholic in order to survive persecution by the Germans during the Holocaust. And here I was really shoehorning myself into this world, trying to pass in another way. And I really unpacked that my parents were psychologists and psychiatrists. So of course, you know, I'm screwed up and I got to dig in <laughs> to that. But in the book, I talk a lot about identity. What makes you belong? What makes something your own? And I would often say to dad, you know, dad, this isn't our world. This is Ralph Lauren's world of cashmere and Jodhpur's. And he'd say, Sarah, not Ralph Lauren, Ralphie Lifshitz. Ralph Lauren's original name is Ralph Lifshitz. And he's a Jew from New York, just like me. And that spoke to me about identity it is what you make it and what you define of it. You can choose it and create it yourself. And if I can go on, please, um, this I, is your show. <laughs> go for it. Well, I could talk about horses endlessly, but I ended up working for a black cowboy in Harlem as a teenage girl. And I didn't know that black cowboys one in four cowboys were black in the American West in the pioneer era. And they have been totally erased from the American origin narrative, right? Because even though I'm not cowboy stock, somehow that's all of our origin narrative, right? It makes us what uh, wild and free. And they've been removed that you never see them under a Stetson on the silver screen. You know, the Marlboro man is white, white, white. And yet the West was integrated. And I didn't know anything about black cowboys till I worked for this gentleman in Harlem. And in the black cowboys erasure from the American story, 
I saw a parallel to my own people's almost a literal erasure from this planet. And so I ended up riding with the Black Cowboys in Harlem, the founder of the Black Cowboy Museum, who's a postman who spent his life savings to recreate a space for this community in the horse world. And it's just a weird journey that horses took me on, but really a journey into finding myself. I loved when you were doing that riding in Harlem, how you asked why you, like you wanted, you were required, not required, but the owner of the barn wanted you to ride in front of the kids Mm -hmm. who would come in on field trips and you felt bad about it. And you were like, why don't they ride? And like, what's the point of this whole thing? And he told you, you know, the point is not to teach them to ride, it's to teach them to dream. Mm. That was so awesome. Anyway, it gave me chills. Yeah. It's like that. I've heard that story myself a million times because it's my story and I have chills (laughs) sitting here. Look at my chills (laughs) at me. Chills. Because I, I said to him, to Dr. Blair, I said, you know, we have these inner city children coming to pet these horses at the New York City Riding Academy, as we called it. We don't teach them any riding. What are we teaching them? And he said, we're teaching them that they're part of the American story, that there is a different world out there from the one they feel is inevitable laid out before them in the ghettos and in the poorest tracks of the city. And we're teaching them to dream. And I'll never forget that sentence as long as I live. Um, Yeah, that was really inspiring. I mean, with any, I guess, obsession, if you call, I mean, I feel like obsession has a negative connotation. I, I wouldn't have described this book as a book of obsession. So I'm interested that that's how you saw it. Like, cause that sounds bad to me. Like I'm trying to quit or like, Uh, like it has a hold on you. That's bad as opposed to a passion, which is something you're really into. And it's a great thing. Like obsession to me sounds like Glenn Close and like, (laughs) you know, know, basic instinct, not basic instinct. What am I talking about? Fatal attraction, right? Like where where it's an uncontrolled Mm. negative thing. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help 
and I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Moms Don't Have Time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Moms Don't Have Time. Well, first of all, I'm obsessed with your podcast, so I think it's a positive. (laughs) In that that reference, you can keep that one. But think about it. I've deeply injured myself. You know, an x-ray technician looked at my spine once and said that was almost a game ender. Uh, So is the obsession healthy? Oftentimes I have felt unworthy uh, when I can't achieve in this incredibly demanding sport. So maybe there is a negative side of obsession, but obsession is also a driver. Obsession with achievement, obsession with a passion can be a a tremendous positive like flame under your tail that that's true sets you going so um yeah maybe i don't mean obsession negatively but i also accept the negative sides of this obsession i'll tell you a really interesting story from the book is about horse crazies which is a word of honor to me also crazy can be negative but i wear it with a badge of honor who are obsessed with plastic horses and I, okay, after, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. No, you go, you go ahead. No, no, to ask away. Cause no, I was going to say after I read that was when I was pulling out all of my mother-in-law and late mother-in-law's stuff from the basement. And I pulled out all of my sister-in-law Stephanie's stuff because her mom had been holding it all. Anyway, long way to say, as I was saying before, I pulled out all her horse riding ribbons because she's a huge, was a huge horseback rider. And then I pulled out a whole crate of those horses, the plastic horses. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is exactly, it was so crazy. (laughs) I was like, I just read that upstairs, put my book down. And then there it was. Oh, they're haunting you. They are. (laughs) I know. I was like, this is like a cosmic something. So for people who don't know, there are one to nine scale models of horses, hyper-realistic, and they're children's playthings, which is why you found them in a box packed away. However, there is a tremendous community of adults who take them around the country and compete them. And competing is not like making dioramas with them or decorating. It's literally store-bought models against store-bought models. And then for criteria I can't understand, the best one wins. And just so you understand the scale, they have a like a Lollapalooza called Briarfest in Kentucky every year, where, where the <laughs> the Derby is. Seven, uh, excuse me, thirty thousand people show up. Thirty thousand people are into this. So I came to a convention, a, a, a smaller one, a horse horse show, model horse show. Totally skeptical, thinking, who are these wackadoos, you know, who are doing this? In full honesty, really violating the journalistic tenets of of being open and absorbing. And I left inspired by them that here was this community of people who, unlike me, are not thinking about the world thinks about them. And they were engaged in unmitigated play. And we lose play. You know, your your show is about moms and how often do moms wish they could just play with the same abandon of their children and we lose it. And here were people holding onto it tightly. And I would deem them just as much horse people, even if they've never pet a real one that's not made of plastic acetate as I am, because they see the whimsy and joy in it just as I do. Wow. Tell me a little bit more about the pain because mm. you have had so many injuries as you, the back and we were just discussing, but I know it's an obsession, but still, and you had one line in here too, that was like, I know that I keep hurting myself, but I'm not going to stop anyway. Mm. And I felt like this was a cautionary line. Like, is there some part of you that wants someone to be like, maybe you <laughs> should take it easy? Yeah. 
you know yeah. what I mean? Like, <laughs> what's this about? You know? Oh, that's so interesting. I've never been asked that. It's an excellent question. I have okay. to think hard about it because, again, my parents being therapists, there has to be a deeper reason. Well, there is, right? The calculus of how important this is to me is apparently something I'm willing to die for. Yeah. And I feel that way about my job for the New York Times. I've gone into very dangerous terrorist kidnapping zones in Benin in West Africa. And I, in moments I thought, you know, this is your workplace, you know, and, and I thought, you know what, you are willing to die for this. I, I don't think you want to be reckless for it, but there's something about the importance of these two things in my life that I am willing to risk it all. And Horse Crazy is a journey into understanding what is so compelling about this. It has to be more than their big amber eyes and and the way they feel when I rest my cheek on their flank. And I think there is, and I wanted to examine that in other people. There are women in this book who gallop away from shattering marriages. Mm -hmm. There is a woman actually the cover of the book is a rare Indian Marwari horse. You've read about it. So for people who haven't read, they're just like regular horses, except they have a delightful addition, which is curlicue ears on the top of their head. And I became totally smitten with them when I wrote them in India. And I was like, I have to have a Marwari. Turns out you can't. They're banned for export by the Indian government that considers them a rare commodity and wants to protect them. But there's one lady on Martha's Vineyard who has like a dozen of them. So I called her up and I was like, how do you have a dozen of these? And she's a total like very decadent bitch. And she's like, come to my farm. You'll see. Come, I'll see you this weekend. Like, All right. So I show up on her farm, uh, Francesca Kelly. And we swam with the horses and we galloped with these wild Indian horses. And she told me how she's been the steward of them in, in going back to India for 20 years. She's a British socialite to cultivate the breed and support them in their country. And she got a couple out before the ban and then it locked down. And I said to her, you know, Francesca, great story. Thank you for the weekend. The ban was in like the 90s or something. How come there's a two-year-old here? How's there a four-year-old horse? Yeah. And she looked up at me from her floor of her mansion in Barth Standard. And she said, Sarah, you come up with tremendous adventure when you engage in tremendous duplicity. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell? <laughs> Turns out she's been smuggling their semen on Air India flights in her pockets, rare Indian horse semen and building this illicit herd. But then as you ask, right, why are you willing to go to these lengths for these animals? You know, that's risking a lot and there has to be more to it. So I, I said to her, you know, and I often say this, the sum total of my job description and yours too, is the question why. That's it. If you, if you wanted to answer a, a journalist, what a journalist's life is, why? And so she'd give me the what, you know, the horses. She'd given me the, the how, you know, the smuggling, but no why. Why you, Francesca Kelly? Why are you the steward of these horses for 20 years and going back after this initial safari ride that made you fall in love with them? She went on a ride with her husband. And turns out she's been going back, yes, to cultivate the horses, but to have a steamy love affair with the safari guide from that initial ride she went on 20 years ago. Their love affair has spanned both their marriages and destroyed hearts. And, and she said, Sarah, yes, horses are the story, but are they ever the whole story? So I feel like saying that to you. Yes, Zippy, horses, <laughs> they're the story, but are they ever the whole story? But that's the kooky, that's the horse crazy journey in the book. Wow. I love that. So on top of traveling everywhere for the New York Times and doing all of that work, you have your little notebook on the side where you took notes. But when did you when did you write the whole book? Like what was that process like? How long did that whole thing take you? How did you integrate it with the rest of your your busy life and all of that? Really interestingly, 
I think I have been writing this book my whole life as a narrative alongside my own work. So when I have a particularly harrowing phone call to make to someone who's just lost a loved one in a tragedy for the times, which I, I do periodically and is very, very challenging. I pull up a video of a horse galloping on my screen and I, I just look at that while I make these really painful calls. And so that's almost a, an analogy for how horses and their story have always been sort of a through line in my life. And so this was quite easy to write because I've always been living that story and much easier than the journalism I do, though it's deeply journalistic. There's a lot of reporting into how horses' saliva works. And yes. I went flying with importing horses in the belly of a 747 with nine Dutch warmbloods to understand the importing business and, and a lot of that. But horses have been a story, almost like a musical note that's been humming in the back of my head. So it just came out. All right. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, that's not how it works with the stuff I do for the Times. I'm you no. know, <laughs> slamming my head on the desk, slaving over it. But this just trotted out to be corny. But it sounds like uh, funny. Huh? Um, <laughs> not sorry. funny. I, funny no, not, not funny. Fu- <laughs> okay, right. I'll give you. I'll give you a. Ha-ha. <laughs> do you love what you do at the Times? It sounds like you love doing this. Oh, I love what I do at the Times. You love both. Yeah. Oh, I can't believe there exists a job where you can be a professional busybody. I get to like ask people about their deepest, darkest things and like get in people's face and be like, tell me about you. Like, I need to know everything about you. And I'm allowed to ask. That's just so delightful. I, it's what I would do anyway. You know, it's, it's like a cocktail party on steroids. That's <laughs> my life. It's really fascinating. I know. I'm almost like sad that cocktail parties are going to come back because I've really enjoyed having 30 minutes to get to like the innermost secrets of everybody I talk to. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to be able to do it. I'm going to be like... <laughs> Every conversation will be like an interview. Yeah, I I don't have shallow conversations, which is, it could be, you know, draining, but it's also to be able to do that for a profession. A lovely man who passed away, who worked at the Times, Charlie De La Fuente, at his retirement party, 29 years, he said, I wanted to say this for 29 years, so I'm going to say it now. I can't believe you've been paying me for 29 years for what I would have done for free. And that's how I feel about working at the Times. That's amazing. Don't tell them. They can keep paying me. Okay. (laughs) Don't listen. Log off, log off. off. (laughs) So what next for you in life? You have this amazing book out. You're busy as a reporter or journalist or whatever you want to call it. Both. 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 Where do you see things going? Well, so much, Zibi. I actually love that we're doing this now because I just signed a couple new developments. Yay! I think I'm allowed to talk about it, but I just will anyway. I have a children's book series coming out with Abrams on horses. So sort of taking the journeys from this book and making them middle grade. And they're actually going to be told from the horse's perspective, which will be really fun. And I've never done any fiction. So that's going to be really exciting. Talk about like letting your pen fly. And I also am working on an investigative documentary series on the horse world that is just getting underway. So that is like the horse media moguldom I'm trying for. (laughs) I just got to corner more horse markets and more different venues. I love that. And now you need a children's book, like younger. Oh yeah. Kids. Like really little ones. Like really little ones. Just because I have a few. So Okay. Yeah. Do they like horses? (laughs) Great. I have three sold already. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Free sell. (laughs) Your pre-orders are taken care of. Yeah. But it's really amazing to align all your passions. Like never, if you had told like, you know, 12 year old me that I would be writing about horses and making movies about horses. She would have just punched you in the nose and been like, liar, you know, this is what you do on the side. And this is your 
private dream, but now it's becoming my life. That's so great. Well, having sort of ridden, ha ha, through this journey with you. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Ha ha. <laughs> Payback. Okay. Right. I deserve that. No, it's really satisfying to see what's coming out of it all because it obviously comes from such a pure place of of passion and interest and really respect for the animals. I mean, the way you talk about horses, I haven't heard anybody else talk about them. I feel like I've learned new things about them. Not that I'm even, I mean, I used to ride a little bit like mm. as a kid or whatever, like most, I'm not, I shouldn't say like most people, like a lot of people I grew up with every mm. so often we would like, it's like, it was in the thing with well, the, a girl thing, with right? the ice yeah. skating mm-hmm. and I don't know, it was something you tried, right? But I'm no more horse person than the next person. All mm. to say after this book though, I felt very differently. Like oh, and all of a sudden, by the way, I started getting like, I posted about this book and then I got like five pitches about other books about horses. And I was like, no, 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 I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, it's not that I want to read more about horses. It's that like, it just turned my attention into, it, it just made me rethink of them, think of them in a new way and a deeper way. And like knowing the history of them. And I don't know, it's just really cool from an intellectual sort of exercise perspective. Well, I'm really honored by you saying that because that was my goal in writing it, that I didn't want to write to preach to the converted, right? The I, I say in the beginning of the book, when anyone asks me really, why do I love horses? I say, because horses, right? And mm-hmm. that's just a, an answer that every horse person understands. But it's not a book just for horse people. It's a book for anyone who's ever wanted to understand passion. So you being able to derive that from it and go on a literary intellectual journey with it is like my whole goal. Oh, great. So thank you for achieving yeah. it for me. Boom, off Boom, the list. <laughs> there was so much though also about your dad and about your mom too, but really the relationship between you and your dad and you know his like inherited trauma and Judaism. And I mean, there was so much. And like the way that everything came full circle at the end with the hunt. I mean, oh my gosh. Oh, wow. You just tied it up with like such a nice bow. And I always joke that people who are going to get this book and be like, why is there so much Hitler in this book about horses? <laughs> and I had a lot of self-consciousness writing those threads. And I, but I, I, I come to terms with it in the book and I say, you know, braided together, those are the threads of my life that I have to, you know, tell my truth and, and, and show that tapestry. But with a father who had really his life forged in the fulcrum of war. I felt deep self-consciousness just of having a comfortable life, right? Like, how are you allowed to be okay? How are you allowed to have a problem with your pony when your father had such atomistic ones as survival, as mystic problems of survival? And my father would say, never envy me my trauma. I envy you were spared your own. And it really made me realize that we're all on our, our own journeys. But putting those different threads together. I had a really extreme self-consciousness about writing it, just as anybody who's the product of, of intergenerational trauma has a shame about living a happy life. Like, how are you allowed this? Uh, how are you allowed this victory? But my father saw riding horses as one giant victory lap, yes. spitting in the eye of the forces that tried to wipe us out. And actually, I'll just tell one quick story that you read in the book. One year I competed in a very Tony horse show, the Hampton Classic, you know, the creme de la creme. And I was about 14, 16, I can't remember. And I was sure I was garbage. You know, I, I had a deep sense of unworthiness inserting myself in this world. So I put my horse away and I went to find funnel cake, right? I'm there for the cake. And my dad, this elderly Holocaust survivor who knew nothing about horses, waited all day long at the ringside and, you know, burning in the sun. And when they called the winners out of 60 or so horses, I had one second place. And so the horses, as you know, trot in for a victory lap, right? They go into the winner's circle, but they're in the line of these 
gallant steeds as my little old dad because I'm nowhere to be seen. And he puts a second place ribbon on his chest and he turned to the judge and he said, I defeated Hitler. (laughs) And I got it, right? It's the craziest thing, but I got it. And maybe that's part of what drove me to this obsession. Wow. Continuing the victory lap. I love that. Okay. Last question. What advice would you have for aspiring authors? For aspiring authors, write, 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 write. But I don't mean write and sit down with a pen and make it beautiful. I was just saying this to someone, actually interviewing a veteran who has extreme post-traumatic stress disorder, and that prevents her from doing so much and from writing. And But she has a story to tell. And I said, anytime you think of a thread of a story, pop your iPhone on a recorder, make a voice memo, just go. And to me, that's writing. That's just storytelling. It doesn't matter if it's beautiful or punctuated. Just start getting your story out, even if it's just to your little recording device. And that's the first step. So many times we stop ourselves before that with, I'm not good enough. It could never be me. It's someone else. My dad had a motto. I will leave your listeners with this. It was, let them say no first before I tell myself no. And I just love that. And it's guided my entire life. Let them say no first. Don't do the work for them. Try and let them say no first. And chances are they'll say yes. Love it. Wow. I feel like your dad just like yeah. came in. Little, two little Yehuda. Yeah. A little uh, <laughs> flyby. Or yeah. Flyby Yehuda. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, Sarah, thank you so much. Thanks for this experience of reading this book and getting to chat with you. And I'm so excited for all the things you have coming up. And Thank really you. Awesome. I'm excited for things you have coming up and more in-person stuff. Should we touch hands? I don't know. Are we huh? look huh? <laughs> real person. <In> person. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.